Well, let me invite you to open up uh, your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We uh, come to a topic in this text that I don't think uh, I would probably come to if I was just deciding what to preach on my own. But one of those texts that God in His providence says we would just work our way through a book God brings us to. And that is extremely, I think, important and helpful. And if He did, saves God's people from many, many heartaches. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verses 1 to 8. Uh, Every year, there are approximately 1 million active civil court cases in Canada. Uh, On any given day of the week, what that means is that thousands of people in our land are suing each other and being sued by one another. And on the one hand, with that, we might be tempted to bemoan, and I think we do this often, we, we bemoan how litigious our society has become. And we hear of some of these extreme, crazy uh, court cases and settlements, and we could just bemoan, everybody's just suing everybody over all kinds of ridiculous things. But on the other hand, many of those civil cases are quite legitimate. We live in a fallen, broken world, and in the world in which we live, this world is actually full of things like broken contracts and contract disputes. Uh, sometimes even contracts, maybe they're being debate and what was actually written there in the contract and how it should be interpreted or things that happened over a handshake. There are deals and arrangements that have gone sideways. There are unpaid debts and the need for debt collection. You have landlord and tenant disputes, property disputes and damages, things like fraud, theft and corruption, injury and accidents and all sorts of things. And all kinds of things like that end up And what we call our civil court system where one party sues another. But those types of grievances and disputes, I think if we're really honest, aren't just something that happens out there in society. In fact, sometimes they happen among God's people too. And you think about how this could happen. The Bible describes this as a family. We are the family, the household of God. And as a family, as a household, uh, we tend to intertwine our lives quite a bit, don't we? Uh, We work together. We end up in business contracts and arrangements together. We intertwine our lives. And one thing, even in our midst as God's people, one of the things that happens as we do that, that, that's maybe not present outside in society all the time, is we tend to just kind of trust each other. Because, well, that person's a brother. That person's a sister in Christ. There's often a higher degree and level of trust. And sooner or later, these same types of grievances and disputes happen among God's people. Sometimes Christians have grievances against each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 addresses this reality and it explains to us, making it quite clear that when these things happen, there's a right way, a God-honoring way for Christian brothers to settle their disputes and there's definitely a wrong way. And we don't want to handle those things the wrong way and yet Christians are often inclined to do that very thing and settle Uh, their disputes the very same way that everyone else does through the courts. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Actually, in, in the original language, on the very front end of that sentence are these words, Dare you! Do you have the audacity to take another brother in Christ to court? 
And and Paul exclaims throughout this text that because it is shameful to take another believer to court, you should settle your disputes in-house. In other words, Christians should stay away from taking each other to court and working out and wrestling through their grievances and disputes with one another in the public system. Now that immediately raises so many questions in our mind, doesn't it? I mean, it does in mind. I'd imagine as I say those words, you probably have all kinds of different scenarios and things just uh, rushing through your mind. And that is because I think we can think of instances when it would just seem logical that, that the courts should be involved. They probably really should be. That wisdom would just seem to dictate that. Or we can think of instances where that would more or less seem unavoidable. How do you go through this circumstance without that happening in the courts? So we have this question. Is Paul making a blanket statement that a believer should never be in court, period? If that's the statement that Paul is saying, well, then that's God's word and that's it. And we bow before that and we just completely stay out of the court system. But to answer that question, it might be helpful to note uh, a few considerations before we dive into this text. And I think I want to give you three uh, kind of preliminary considerations that I think are very helpful in setting this stage. Uh, The first would be that Paul specifically condemns here brother going to court against brother. He's not necessarily forbidding a Christian from going to court against an unbeliever, a person who has not come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. What he's concerned about is two Christians being in court against each other, brother against brother. So Paul specifically condemns brother going to court against brother. Second preliminary consideration, Paul does not make a blanket prohibition in this text. Actually, in just a moment, I'm going to read through this text. And what you'll notice, if you're, I think especially if you're looking for it, um, is that this text is composed primarily of questions. Almost the entire text. And I think these questions are meant to probe our consciences and our hearts. As God thinks about his children, he's not always just simply concerned about the black and white of do this and don't do that. He's probing towards our hearts. which is so, so important, probing our consciences and hearts. And rather than laying out a blanket prohibition, it would seem that God, what he has done, uh, just by giving this to us by means of a bunch of questions, it would seem that he has laid before us a very basic principle for which there are exceptions. But we want to remember that that's exactly what they are, exceptions, not the norm. Uh, So, Uh, So far, Paul specifically condemns brother going to court against brother. He does not make a blanket prohibition in this text. And a third just consideration as we begin, and I think this is most helpful. Paul says that the government does not bear the sword in vain. That's Romans chapter 13, verse 4. That uh, really the first few verses of Romans 13 are extremely helpful when we think about a text like this. But this idea of the government not bearing the sword in vain would, would tell us that human governments possess the God-given authority to punish wrongdoers, to punish criminals. In fact, all the way to the point of capital punishment, all the way to the point of executing a criminal. Think perhaps in the case of murder and the death sentence. So whatever we conclude here about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it has to reconcile with Romans chapter 13 and the government not bearing the sword in vain. And one of the ways I think that that is reconciled is simply by recognizing that there are two different types of law in almost 
any legal system. You have, on the one hand, what we might call civil law, which involves so many of the things that I've already mentioned. Contract disputes and all sorts of things like that. And on the flip side of that, uh, you have what's called criminal law and violations of, of the criminal code. It would seem quite clear from Romans 13, verse 4, that God intends the government to deal with many, though perhaps not all, criminal situations, whether that criminal be a so-called brother or not. In fact, Romans chapter 13, who's it written to? It's written to believers, and they're being warned about their relationship to the government. Uh, lest they, they, they not uh, submit to their government, the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. By God's design. So whether he's a brother or not, if he's a criminal, maybe there's a place for him in the legal system. And one of the ways that justice is often served in God's plan is actually through the court system. So it would seem that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is primarily, though not entirely, related to what we would think of as civil law or civil lawsuits, typically what we think about one party suing another party, taking another party to court and litigation. I say that in part uh, because if you look at verses 7 to 8 of this text, you'll see words like defraud. That is the language of civil suit. So is Paul making a blanket statement that a believer should never be in court with another believer, period? No, I don't think that we can say that, but that is the general principle, and there are exceptions. For example, um, if your quote-unquote saved spouse files for a divorce, and you would then be forced into a legal proceeding that is most likely going to happen in the courts. If a woman's husband is violent towards her and the kids, it would seem to be appropriate based on Romans chapter 13 to ensure their safety by seeking something like a restraining order. If a so-called brother is found to be a sexual offender, offender, the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. And it's there to protect that sort of thing from happening again. So we do have exceptions like that, and yet the general principle remains the same because it is shameful to take another believer to court, you should settle your disputes in-house. With all that said, let's read this text, 1 Corinthians 6, 1-8. to Paul writes, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I think what Paul is doing here in this text is he's giving us reasons that brother should not go to court against brother. And so we want to look at five reasons uh, not to do that this morning. First, from verse 1, because the unrighteous are on some level deficient. 
The unrighteous are on some level deficient when it comes to settling these these types of disputes between believers. Look at verse 1 again. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? When you have a dispute that needs settled between you and another brother in Christ, uh, you have really two primary options. You could take the matter before the secular courts. Or you could take it before other believers who could help you resolve it and, and reach a, a verdict and have an arbitration. What I want you to notice from verse 1 is the label that God uses for each of those two groups. The label that God uses for each of those two options. Because these labels are actually bursting with implications. Option number one is the unrighteous. You could take this grievance, you could take this dispute before the unrighteous. And the word that God chose there means unjust, dishonest, untrustworthy. You could present your case before people who by their very nature are unrighteous. They are breakers of God's law. Those who break God's laws are the ones that we would go to in matters of law? Really, Paul says? Or option number two, you could bring this dispute before the saints. What does that word saints mean? It means holy ones. The saints, who are the saints? Is that just a select few super Christians of some kind? No, he uses it of all of God's people. The word saints means holy ones. And the the saints are former breakers of God's law. Who God has set apart. Please don't misunderstand here. Paul is not bashing the courts by any means. In fact, throughout Paul's ministry, he often appeals to the courts and he often appeals to the the rule of law. He's not saying that, you know what, all the courts are corrupt and they're just full of a bunch of unbelievers who have no sense of justice and no sense of righteousness. You go in there, it's just going to end poorly because it's just pure corruption. You'll never get justice there. That's not what Paul's saying. No, actually, the courts are often very, very, very good at justice. The problem is that the courts are made up of unbelievers whose thinking and character is not informed by the word or law of God. It's a relatively one-dimensional system when you think about it. The the one primary concern, although I don't want to say this entirely as a blanket statement, but, but one of the driving concerns in our legal system is simply justice. What's right? What's wrong? What's fair? Let's settle it. And equity By the law of the land. That's nice. That's wonderful. That's great. The saints, yes, they are concerned about justice too. But the saints recognize a higher law. The saints are a holy people. And they are governed by a holy law that God says has been engraved upon their hearts. And they are concerned not simply with justice, but also with holiness. They are a holy people concerned about holiness. The unrighteous are not so, making them on some level deficient to settle disputes between God's people. Um, Siblings are always concerned about fairness, aren't they? When you grew up, if you had siblings, it was probably what is fair, what is equitable, what is right, and everything needs to be fair. Growing up, we said things like, that's not fair. I mean, I don't know, maybe dad goes out on Sunday morning and he brings home a box of donuts and your sibling gets the donut with 10 times more sprinkles than yours? That's not fair. 
It's not fair that my sibling should have the, the, the highly sprinkled donut and I just get this one with just a few. It needs to be fair, Dad. It needs to be fair, Mom. We're so concerned about fairness. And yet you think about Christian parents and how they would probably parent their homes and their children. Is the average Christian parent simply concerned about what is fair? I mean, think about if a Christian parent makes that the primary way in which they parent their children. We just need to make sure everything's fair around here. We just need to keep the peace by everything just being fair. Wouldn't that be a rather deficient way of parenting? Godly parents care about other things too, like their children's attitudes and their children's ways of thinking, not just their behavior and what's equitable and how to settle a dispute. They care about much, much more than just keeping the peace. And I think that is, that is one of the, the contrasts that's being made here in verse 1. You can take it to the unrighteous. Or you can take it to the holy ones. Because the unrighteous are on some level deficient, you should settle your disputes in-house. A second reason Christians should not go to court against one another is because the saints are more than competent. On the one hand, unbelievers are on some level deficient to settle these disputes. And on the flip side of that, the saints are more than competent. How do you know that? Because, I mean, if we're honest, maybe your first thoughts aren't actually to go to the, the saints for help. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's not our first thought at all. To make his point, God asks you to consider who the saints will eventually judge and to consider what the saints currently, right now, today, possess. He invites you to consider who the saints will eventually judge. In the final judgment, the saints will judge the world and the saints will judge fallen angels, demons. And Paul makes two arguments in verses 2 to 3, both, both of which move from the greater to the lesser. Argument number one that he makes is, hey, listen, the saints are going to judge the world. Look at verse 2. He goes, or do you not know? And by the way, he's going to use that phrase again and again and again. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? And the Corinthians have prided themselves on their knowledge and on their wisdom. And Paul just keeps coming back to them. Do you not know? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases, trivial everyday cases? The teaching of the saints judging the world is frankly not developed all that extensively throughout Scripture. It would seem that its roots are back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. But we do have statements like this by Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 28. He said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If the saints will be involved in that judgment that Jesus speaks of there in Matthew 19, 28, then they are more than competent to settle the everyday matters, the trivial cases as Paul speaks of them in this life. But don't miss Paul's irony though here. Christians will one day judge the very people that they would think about going to, entering into the law courts with and asking them for judgment from how ironic and absurd is that? One writer says, for Paul, the absurdity of this matter lies right at this point. Here are those who will not inherit the kingdom. 
whom God is going to judge through God's own people. And you are allowing matters needing judgment to be brought before them? So argument number one, that the saints will judge the world. And his second argument is that the saints will judge the angels. Look at verse three. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Uh, this argument doesn't just simply move from the greater to the lesser, but also from the spiritual and the supernatural to the mundane. And again, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser. If the saints will be involved in the judgment of angels and the judgment of demons, then they are more than competent to settle the everyday matters of this life. Uh, let's say you have a friend, and your friend has a PhD in math. I mean, she is super, super smart and intelligent. She's extremely intelligent, down to earth, all at the same time. She's so smart that, that your friend gets hired uh, for this top secret, super high level government job. You know, it's one of those jobs that she can't talk about. Yeah, no, don't ask me any questions about my job. I can't tell you anything. It's code for I'm an assassin. I'm just kidding. Um, but it's one of those jobs that she can't talk about. What if someone were to ask her, she's got this PhD in math, she's extremely capable of working this extremely high-level job that requires a great knowledge of her field and subject matter. And what if a school principal asked her to be a substitute teacher for middle school math one day? Hey, I know it's sort of last minute, but do you think you could step in today and like fill in? Oh, I don't know if I'm capable of that. <laughs> no, that's not what she'd say. I mean, she probably doesn't even need to look at the material. She'd just show up in class. Oh, yeah, I know all this stuff. I can handle this. Do you think she could handle it? I think so. And that's the kind of argument that Paul is employing here. He's saying, listen, don't you realize that the saints are going to judge the world? <laughs> That God has entrusted that type of judgment to the saints. And you don't think they're competent to handle the trivial matters of life. They are beyond competent. I think at this point though, one might object. Yes, okay. But the saints aren't glorified yet. That judgment happens after the saints behold Jesus face to face and they're like him. And that hasn't happened yet, which means that they are not as capable now in this current moment as they will be then when that happens. And at this point, God invites you to consider what the saints currently possess, and that is wisdom. Look at verses 4 to 5. He says, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Can it be that there's no one wise enough among you to settle a dispute? Really? What is it that the saints currently possess? Wisdom, the type of wisdom that's needed to settle disputes between God's people. So Paul asks in verse 4, why would you take your disputes before unbelievers who are not even a part of the church? Why would you do that? And it's ironic, really, because, as I mentioned, the Corinthians, they boasted of their wisdom and their knowledge and all of these different things. In fact, at the beginning of this book, in 1 Corinthians 
chapter 1, around verse 7, Paul even talked about how the Corinthians were unbelievably gifted. In fact, he talks about how they lack nothing regarding spiritual gifts. It's just like this church has this full array and this wealth of spiritual gifts. One of those gifts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, do you know what it is? It's the gift of wisdom. And Paul is arguing here, the saints are more than competent because they have God-given wisdom. Uh, The first church that I served in, I was a youth pastor. That church was governed a a bit differently than ours is. Um, But that church made a lot of their decisions through uh, a large body of deacons. I I think at the time they had about 25 deacons. And we would have these deacons meetings and and certain matters would be discussed. And that's a large room. I mean, that's a a lot of people discussing a subject matter. And maybe something would come in and uh, a guy would chime chime in over here on what he thought would be the best way to do this or that. And all this discussion, I remember oftentimes in those discussions, um, after there was a lot of back and forth about what would be the best decision to make. Uh, there was a man who often didn't say much at all during those discussion times. And after many people had spoken, he'd often be one of the last to speak. And he would say, here's, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Maybe this is a, a wise way to approach this matter. Uh, this, this seems, here's what I would recommend. And I always felt like after everyone talking, and, and then often this guy would finally speak up. And, and when he did, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, like. Yes, like what that guy just said, that's exactly what we should do. And he, he just stated it so well and so clearly. And, and it just seemed like God had gifted this man with this thing called wisdom. And I am reminded, you know, you do not have to be a pastor to have that. You do not have to be a deacon to have that. You do not have to be an adult to have that. You don't have to be a male to have that. Wisdom is a spiritual gift from the Lord. And as people open up their Bibles and as they read it and as they study it, every day people of God can have this gift. And that is Paul's point. Here you are, you're, you're going out to, to, to asking people to settle your disputes who, who, who don't even have the law of God written on their hearts. When there are everyday people right there in your midst who if they were just presented with the facts could probably very quickly come to a resolution and sort through the matter and reach a verdict, so to speak, and arbitrate on these matters. Because the saints are more than competent, you should settle your disputes in-house. If you happen to find yourself disputing with another believer, or if that would happen in the future, it would seem, based on this text, that you would be very, very wise. Um, if, if that is not something that can be resolved between you and this brother and sister or sister in Christ, it would seem then, based on this text, that you would be very, very wise uh, to maybe perhaps start by coming to your church leadership and say, we need some help. And we want to follow God's standards and principles. And yet we've reached this point where we cannot agree and we need some help. Can can our church leadership or, or would it be possible for some people in our church here to help us? I think based on this text, that is the conversation that God would want you to have. 
And seek to arrange for God's people to help you and help settle the matter between you and a brother God's way. The third reason Christians should not go to court brother against brother is because the testimony of the gospel is at stake. Look at verse 6. But brother goes to law against brother. And then notice this next phrase. And that before unbelievers. When brothers go against each other in the public square, what they're doing is they're airing their dirty laundry before the world. And when that happens, it's actually just a terrible, awful testimony to the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Christians just show in front of everyone how they're really no different than everyone else around them from the rest of the society. Don't go outside with inside affairs. And you think about how this is all going to pan out. This brother goes to court against brother. A judge is going to hear that case. Maybe a jury is going to hear that case. Whatever. And after the facts are in, and after the story is told, an unbeliever, an unrighteous person, is going to pronounce one of those brothers as guilty. That is not good. Like just about every couple... My wife and I have our fair share of disagreements and arguments and things that we don't see eye to eye on. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that there are times when we grieve each other and we wrong each other and we sin against each other. We're family. We're a couple. We're married. Our lives are very much intertwined. We sin against each other. And do you know who we don't try to have our arguments and disputes and disagreements in front of? Well, basically anyone and everybody. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think as in our home, we have four little children. Do you know who we're not having those conversations in front of? Our kids. We don't succeed perfectly at that, but we do really try to make it a practice that if mom and dad need to work something out and we need to kind of wrestle through something together, or maybe we've wronged and sinned against each other, and we need, we need to work through that biblically and make it right, Those are conversations we really try not to have in front of the kids. And we also try to not have those conversations in front of all of you. And I I think that most of you are trying to do this very same thing, which I think most of us all appreciate. Why is it that we do that? Is it because we're trying to give the impression to everyone and to our kids that we have it all together? Or if we really struggled, would we never go to someone else and say, can you help us? No, 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 it's not any of that. But as as we think about our kids in particular, there is a very clear and definite impression that we want to make on them. We want our kids to know that mom and dad love each other. And we enjoy our marriage and it's a gift from God. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that's true. Even if we do have our moments of conflict and where we have to to work through things together, the fact of the matter is, is that we love each other and we're delighted to be married and that's the impression we want our kids to have. And the church should be the same way. No, we don't always have it together here. It's not like there's never problems. It's not like there's never difficulties. It's not like we never sin against each other. But man, God has done something for us. He's saved us. He's made us new. And he's put us into a family. And we want the world around us to see that difference. We want the world around us to see the joy that it is to be a believer. Because the testimony of the gospel is at stake, you should settle your disputes 
in-house. Fourth reason, because it is a complete defeat to go to court. What is the goal of any litigation? What is the goal of that? What is the goal when you go to court? Well, it's not that complicated. You go with the intent of winning. It's to win, right? It's to be vindicated and reach a settlement in your favor. Well, guess what? God says you're, you're never going to get the W that you really want and the one that really, really matters in God's eyes. Look at verse 7. He says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? God says you were defeated the moment that you went to court. No matter what the outcome, it doesn't matter if you win. It doesn't matter if you get all the money. It doesn't matter um, if everything goes in your favor in that legal system. You Don't you realize you've already lost? Whether you win or lose, it's a loss, period. Look at verses 7 and 8 together. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But instead, instead he says, you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own Brothers, sometimes God teaches us here, it's just better to take the material or monetary loss. Maybe at times too, God wants you to just recognize, you know what, this is my brother. And I think God just wants me to truly forgive this brother And I need to focus on moving on and not spiritually the right way with God and not let this destroy me. And not allow this to a root of bitterness to go down into the soil and take root in myself and many people all around me to be defiled. I can even recognize that this is wrong and that this never should have happened. But maybe God just wants me to forgive this person for my own spiritual health, for the health of the body, and so on. Earthly loss is always preferable to spiritual loss. Don't get caught in the trap of wronging and defrauding each other. You may win in this life. You may, you may win the money, whatever. But have you lost on the spiritual realm? Because it's a complete defeat to go to court, you should settle your, your, your disputes in-house. And one fifth and final reason, because God's people are family. Throughout this text, Paul keeps using the word brother. I've used it again and again already this morning. In verse 6, he says that brother goes to law against brother. In verse 8, he talks about brothers wronging and defrauding each other. He's using the language of family. God is telling you to remember that you are family and you should settle your disputes like brothers, not like adversaries in a, in the court, in a court of law. That's what the world does as enemies. You know, it would be a sad thing to read a human interest story of a brother and sister fighting each other in court for every last penny of their parents' wealth after they were deceased. And unfortunately, we've probably all read or heard stories like that. Mom and dad have died, and there's the estate, and there's the money, and there's the inheritance. And brother and sister go to court, and they fight for every last penny. And that's what matters. And meanwhile, their earthly relationship, they don't even have one anymore. Brothers and sisters have become enemies over money. Our world can recognize 
that that's not the type of thing that siblings should be doing? A story like that leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Because these people are family. Relational ties should rise high above that sort of thing, right? And how much more that should be true in the family, the household of God. Because God's people are family, you should settle your disputes in house. Settle as brothers, not as adversaries. And when those disputes come that cannot be settled, you have some options to, I'm going to suffer the wrong. I'll be defrauded rather than lose spiritually. Or, you know what, this really needs to be dealt with. And, And instead of just going right into the secular courts, I'm going to seek out the people of God. And I'm going to seek help so that we settle this God's way. And we work through this as brothers for the glory of God. It is a shameful thing to take another believer to court. Settle your disputes in-house by the grace of God. You know, if we follow this type of of advice, so much heartache, so much pain, uh, God saves us from in our spiritual family. Would you bow your heads with me at this time?